Welcome to Original Women Lesson 9. And I have a lot to cover. Last week when we looked at Lydia, there were three verses on the story of Lydia. Uh, this week we're talking about the Samaritan woman, and this is the longest conversation in Scripture Jesus ever has with someone. So we have two different parallels. So we're just going to jump right into that. And just some background on the Samaritan woman. She'd been married five times, and she's currently living with a man to whom she is not married. And while divorce might be common in our culture, it was not common in their culture. And in fact, there was a lot of ridicule and shame that went with it. Another thing that's important to know is that as a Samaritan, she was not regarded favorably. Samaritans were a mixed race of Jews who had intermarried with foreigners. So as a Samaritan, they believed what the Old Testament said, but they worshiped other gods, okay? That sounds a lot like our culture today. If you were to poll America, most people would say that they are Christians. And most people would even say that they believe the Bible. But they are definitely not worshiping the God of the Bible with their lifestyle. They're worshiping whatever floats their boat, whatever is easy, whatever is fun, whatever they want to, right? Samaritans were so disregarded and looked upon that religious leaders of the day, when they would travel from the town of Judea to Galilee and back again, the most direct route was through the town of Samaria. And rather than go through the town of Samaria, they would intentionally travel two days out of their way just to go all the way around the town because they didn't want to even have conversation with them. Girls, I have avoided someone at Target by ducking down a different aisle. I have never avoided their entire town and gone two days out of my way. I mean, this takes that to a whole nother level, does it not? So we're gonna look at John chapter four, starting at verse one. And it says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. Okay, we just learned that the religious leaders of the day would intentionally go two days travel around Samaria. So the reality is there were other routes he could have taken. He did not have to literally go through Samaria. But when the word of God says that he had to go through Samaria, I believe that's because the father had asked him to. And Jesus did not consider obedience to the Father as something that was optional. Oftentimes, God asks us to do something or we read something in Scripture and we make a choice as to whether or not we want to obey what God is asking of us. Jesus didn't consider this a choice. He had to go through Samaria. And he had to go through Samaria because there was a woman that he needed to have a conversation with. There was a very intentional pursuit that happened by Jesus to go through this town. And in the same way that Jesus pursues this woman who has a sordid past, who is not regarded favorably by other people, Jesus intentionally pursues each and every one of us. And he says, I see you, and I know where you're coming from, and I know your story, and I want relationship with you, and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get a hold of your heart. He was traveling from Judea to Galilee, he was not going to Samaria. Samaria was a spot in the middle of his final destination. It was not the destination. And I would say this, that we all have a destination in mind. Sometimes it's within a day. We have a to-do list. We want to get through it. We know what we're going to do. And please do not mess with my schedule because there is no margin in it. 
Sometimes it's a season. Just got to get through schooling. Just got to get my kids out of diapers. Just got to survive this pregnancy. Just got to get a bigger house. Just got to get another job. There's always something, is there not? We're always looking forward to the next thing. And oftentimes we get so focused on what the next thing is and delaying till the next thing that we miss the right now purpose that he has for our lives. Jesus didn't wait to do ministry until he got to Galilee. But he allowed the Spirit of God to lead him and interrupt him on his journey. Can you be interrupted? Regardless of what you have on your schedule, If the Spirit of God speaks to you to minister to someone, are you in tune enough with him and willing enough to be obedient that whatever he asks of you, you say, you know what? The rest can wait, God. But I am willing to be interrupted from my agenda to do what you are asking. Okay, we're at verse six. It says, Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Okay, the first thing that these verses tell us is that Jesus was tired. Does anybody else get tired? And yet, when he is being asked to do ministry, was not when he was well-fed and not when he was rested. It was when he was tired. And I would contest that oftentimes the ministry that God asks us to do is first and foremost in our homes and to our families. And sometimes it's at 8 o'clock at night when our kid starts a conversation we don't want to really have, right? We're tired and we say, can't this wait for tomorrow? Or maybe it's to our husbands or maybe it's because the phone rang and a friend is in trouble and we just hit ignore because we're tired, and we'll deal with that later. And he's saying, you know what? When you have to be well-fed and well-rested to do ministry, then it is all about conditional on you, not on me. And he's saying, when you can do ministry to people, regardless of where you're at, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of how tired you are, then you are fully reliant on the Spirit of God to lead you, rather than thinking that you have to have it all within yourself. It's not about me. It's not about you. It is about being open to the power of God working through us so that lives can be changed. And the reality is that he oftentimes interrupts us at the most unlikely and most inconvenient times, does he not? But he knows, and his timing is perfect. So the Samaritan woman, she heads to the well around noon. This would have been in the heat of the day. This is not the time when most other women were heading to the well. Most women would have gone at 8 o'clock in the morning, and it would have been their little gathering social hour, and they would have caught up on all of the local gossip. Or they might have gone in the early evening when the sun was starting to set to avoid working in the heat of the day. So why would this woman, with a sordid past, choose to go at noon when it's hot and sticky and the work is gonna feel harder. And I believe it's because she just felt so much shame that she wanted to avoid the gossip or even the perceived judgment, it may not have even been real, the perceived judgment of the other women who would have been at the well. The word shame is defined as a painful feeling 
of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Shame is a liar. And it leaves us feeling worthless, unworthy, and broken. And you will never hear God speak shame over you. That's not who he is. Many of us have believed lies that because of our past choices that we made maybe 20 years ago, might have been 10 or five years ago, or maybe for some of us, it was last night or this past weekend. Things that we have done that we believe, you know what, the enemy has told us, you're never gonna be used by God because of that. My mom got pregnant with me her senior year of high school and my parents got married that summer. They were divorced by the time I was two. And then I went and lived with my grandparents and I lived with them from the time I was two until I entered middle school. I went to a private Catholic school and wore a cute little uniform. And uh, I went from Catholic school to public school in New York. And my sixth grade year, we moved six times in one school year. Entering into my seventh grade year, my mom got remarried in August of my seventh grade year, and by October, her husband had died in our home of a drug overdose, feet from me. Feet from me. Within three or four months, my mom's new boyfriend moved into the house, and starting um, that next summer, he started sexually molesting me over the course of nine months. And so by the time I got through my eighth grade year of Um, schooling, heading into high school, I was a mess. I was so broken. And there were so many lies that I believed. I was suicidal at the time. And so when I got into high school, I really looked for validation from anybody who would give it to me and got involved in a very abusive relationship for the next two years. It was incredibly unhealthy. And so then when I um, headed into my senior year of high school and I really understood the gospel message for the very first time and accepted Christ. There was so much shame that was lifted off of me and so much brokenness that God began to heal in me. But I have to tell you that that wasn't the hardest shame to have broken off of me. The hardest part was after I accepted Christ and several years into it was still living in certain sin patterns because I believed at that point that I should know better. I understand what the word of God says and I still chose to make a poor choice. I still chose to live in sin. And so the enemy would say things to me like, you're never gonna get over this. You're never gonna fight through this. You're never gonna amount to anything because you can't even stand on the promises of God. You can't even believe that he's faithful in your circumstances. You can't even stop this sin pattern. Shame is a liar and that's not who my God is. And what I love about the way that he speaks to the woman at the well is that he speaks to the fact that she had made poor choices, but he mentions it once and it is never spoken of again because it is not who she is. And we remind God way too often of our choices and he's like, I forgot about that. I chose to forget your choices. I chose to forget your sin. Whatever your story is, his grace is sufficient to cover it. And to say that his grace is not sufficient for your sin is to say that the sacrifice of his son on the cross was not enough. And I thought to myself this week, if I laid down the life of my child so that a group of people could live, and they were to ever look at me and say that the sacrifice of my child was not enough for them, 
that it wasn't worth it for them to live differently or to make better choices because my child laid down the life so that they could have life. I can't imagine the pain that I would feel that someone would say that about the sacrifice of my child and yet we do that to God the Father. He sent his son to lay down his life for us. I would gladly lay, gladly lay down my own life. It takes a whole lot more to lay down the life of my child. Ladies, his grace is sufficient. Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. The woman had not yet recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. So when he offers her living water and her response is yes, she's not saying yes because she has a recognition and understanding of what the living water is. She's saying yes because the idea that the opportunity for shame could be removed was something she so desired. You see, if she didn't have to go to the well every day, she didn't have to face the women. She didn't have to be reminded of why she had to live in isolation because of her choices. So what is this living water that Jesus says he is offering to her? And how do we personally receive it? John 7:37 says, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So this word living in living water is the Greek word zeo, and it means to live, breathe, or be among the living. So flowing water, water that moves, and these streams of living water he talks about, flowing water carries away impurities, it gets rid of disease, and because of the purity in flowing water, it's used to clean, hydrate, and it breeds new life. The opposite of flowing water is stagnant water. We live in Minnesota, we should all be familiar with what stagnant water looks like. It's gross, it smells bad, and it is a breeding ground for bacteria. Stagnant water takes in, but it never gives out. And this promise of the Holy Spirit, some of you sit here and think, you know what, I've been a believer, a Christian for a very long time, but I don't feel like I have streams of living water. In fact, I think I could more relate to the stagnant water that you're talking about. But that's because there is a condition on receiving the streams of living water. I have this beautiful red balloon over here. And I wanna know how many of you believe that I could pop this balloon by throwing one dart. Raise your hand if you believe in one throw. Raise it high, don't be ashamed. I could pop the balloon. Okay, keep your hands raised. Don't put them down. We're not gonna be ashamed. Keep your hands raised. Keep your hand raised 
if you are willing to come and hold the balloon. Okay, there's a couple of you. Thank you. Okay, keep your hand raised if you are willing to hold the balloon with your teeth. Anybody? Amanda? Okay, come on up here. Amanda trusts me. And part of the reason Amanda trusts me is because we've been friends for a long time, have we not? And so I would, oh, hold on quick, I'm, I'm just, a little bit nervous. well, I'm I understand. Can you just sign this waiver quick? <laughs> that, you won't, that you won't hold the church liable for whatever I do? Oh, wow, okay. I mean, yeah. I am, yeah. Sign the so, way. perfect, thank you. Okay, here you go, come on over here. Okay. Face, face the ladies, put the balloon okay. in your mouth. All right, oh, I want, like, get closer to the dartboard. No, it may, oh, no, I'm not gonna that way. Turn sideways, there you go. Okay, all right. Okay, how many of you think that Amanda believes what she said? I'm not gonna throw the dart. <laughs> I would Thank you, try. thank you. You obviously would. Did anybody question whether or not Amanda believed what she said? She came up here, she had the balloon in her mouth. She was willing to stand there. She did not know what I was going to do. I did not give her warning. She was willing to come up here and stand and put the balloon in her mouth. And she trusted, she trusted me. And can I say this, that there were a lot of hands raised when I asked you if you believed that I could pop the balloon in one throw. But when I asked you to walk that out, all of a sudden you weren't quite so confident in whether or not you believed it. And I think the church is filled with people who say that we believe but the minute the trial comes, the minute the hard thing is asked, all of a sudden we're, we're not quite so sure that we believe him. We're not quite so sure that we can trust him. You know, part of the reason Amanda trusted me in that is because we have relationship, because she knows me, because she knows that I wouldn't ever intentionally do something to cause harm to her. So if you're struggling with your belief of him and who he is and what he is asking of you, that comes out of intimacy in your relationship with him. The word believe means to expect or hope with confidence, to trust. <clears throat> Matthew 7:22. not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. We can get filled up with knowledge of who God is. And he can allow and use us to do things to accomplish his purposes. And yet he may still say to us in that day, when we stand before him, depart from me, I never knew you. Because God doesn't look at the same things man looks at. We look at the outward appearance. We base someone's heart on their knowledge. And we think, oh, well, they know a lot of Bible verses, they must have a good heart. And that's not how God operates. Have you ever wondered why Jesus chose to reveal himself to this Samaritan woman 
rather than to one of the religious leaders of the day. There were plenty of people who knew the Old Testament, who spent their days at the temple, who would have had all of the knowledge. In fact, just one chapter before, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, and he chooses to not reveal himself to Nicodemus. He chooses to wait and reveal himself as Messiah to this woman. Why? Because God looks at our hearts. And he's not judging us just by how much knowledge we have. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord looks at the heart. The reality is that there are a lot of modern-day Pharisees in God's house. We believe in God and a personal version or form of who we have defined him to be, but it's not who he actually is. If you were to say to me, hey, do you know who Donald Trump is? I'd say yes. I do know who Donald Trump is. I know what he looks like. I could probably recognize his voice. I know everything the media and the tabloids would ever want to tell me about him. So do I know Donald Trump? I know who he is, but I don't know him. I don't know him the way his wife and his kids know him. I don't have an intimate relationship with him, and many of us have reserved our relationship with God to just what our pastor tells us and what little pieces of the sermon from the weekend or sisterhood we can remember, rather than it being an intimate relationship with God, sitting down so that we begin to recognize his voice personally, so that we know how he would respond and react in circumstances and situations. The only version of Donald Trump that I know of is what other people have told me about him. But it is not how he would choose to have relationship with someone who was close to him. And God is looking for a bride that has intimacy in their relationship with him. Mark 7, 6 through 8 says, These people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart isn't in it. They are, act like they are worshiping me, but they don't mean it. They just use me as a cover for teaching whatever suits their fancy, ditching God's command and taking up the latest fads. The Pharisees, they practiced a lot of religious rituals and they spent more time at the temple than anyone else did. But if you're in church week after week and you don't honestly believe everything that your Bible says, could you be a Pharisee? And I think it's important for every single one of us to ask ourselves that question. Lord, do I desire knowledge of you more than relationship with you? So how do you know whether or not you truly believe? The fruit of your life will be evidence of it. Please do not hear this as a call to perfection. Even the disciples missed the boat at different points in time. Did they not? Even the disciples made poor choices, and at moments they struggled with their faith. But this, these were moments in time. It was not an active lifestyle. Okay? So are you living an active lifestyle of belief? Do you really believe what the word of God says or do you pick and choose what is convenient and modify the word of God to accommodate culture? Because culture is gonna tell us that the word should look one way 
But that's not what my Bible says. And the last time I checked, the word of God does not change. Culture changes. My emotions change. My circumstances change. God does not change. So I would way rather be confident in trusting in who he is, the one who does not change, than in my circumstances and what other people would want to tell me. True belief leads to true worship. John 4, 19 through 20 says, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus responds in verse 23. He says, But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This word worship is the Greek word proskineo, and it means to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. Okay, I opened my Greek concordance, and I was like, really? You couldn't come up with a better definition than a dog licking his master's hand, honestly? And then I started to think about my dogs. I have two pups at home, and I started to think about the position of the dog in my home. My dogs know who their provider is. They are very well aware of that. My dogs do not consider themselves an equal to me. They listen when I call. They know who their master is and what is the proper place in our relationship. In fact, my dogs can't even leave the home without my permission. And I thought, okay, Lord, do I do that with you? Do I fully trust you as my provider? Do I only move forward in something when I know that you have given me permission to do so? Do I recognize your voice and obey when you call me? These are all forms of worship. You see, we often think of worship as just the emotional moments we have in church on a Sunday morning. And when he says to her that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth, he's saying, you know what? Worship is now moving from a location in the temple to becoming an active lifestyle. Because he says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. So you no longer have to go to a specific location to meet with me. But you can be a carrier of my presence. And that means that your choices, your everyday lifestyle, becomes an active form of worship to you. It requires our hearts and our minds. It requires that we engage our minds. So this means that when we open the word of God to do our soap, it doesn't just become something that we check off a list. But we say, you know what, Lord? I want to understand what you're saying to me this morning. I want to hear from you. I don't want to forget an hour from now what I read in this moment, but I want it to be something that causes me to think about you throughout my day, to be reminded of who you are. I want to meditate on it. True worshipers have an accurate view of God. When he was talking to her about a true worshiper, part of it was because she was a Samaritan and he knew that their version of God was different. It was not aligned with who he was. We often become way too reliant on a perception we have of God 
rather than getting to know him personally. And our worship of him requires action. John 4:28. the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. And then verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. She left Jesus and immediately began to tell her story. She didn't have to memorize a bunch of Bible verses to be used by him. She didn't have to have vast knowledge, although it is good to have an understanding of who he is. I would never discourage that. I'm just saying that you don't have to wait to be used by God. You're just gonna share your story about what he has done in your life because that is a beautiful form of worship to him. And when we truly believe who he is, then how can we not want that for the people that he brings across our path, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts, God, and I pray, Lord, that you would seal this within us. Father, I pray that you would help us in our unbelief, Lord. Father, that our actions would line up with what we say about you. Because you are worthy, you are trustworthy, and we can have full confidence in your promises. We have full confidence, God, that what you have spoken will come to pass. We don't look at our circumstances, we don't look at what we can see in the natural, because we serve the God of the supernatural. So I pray that you would seal this in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.